Kyle, Niall here, calling from the south coast of England, uh, where I'm living and working, originally from the west coast of Ireland. Just uh, wanted to send a message, say thanks for the podcast. I'm about to go in for a wave kite surfing session. I know you've had a bit of a love-hate relationship with kite surfing, but I would recommend getting back on that horse. Once, uh, you know, the sense of impending debt is over, it's actually quite good fun. Um, so I just want to say a big thanks for turning me into a mushroom coffee CBD-infused meditating weirdo, and I'm a much better person for it. So keep up the good work. Hey, Niall, thanks for sending that in from all the way across the pond. I am coming to you from northern Colorado. Been in Colorado for the last couple weeks, getting a lot of writing done. I am now in a spot overlooking 600-foot cliffs with a winding river below me full of rainbow trout and dark storm clouds rolling in above. And I've been learning how to fly fish. Uh, one awesome listener reached out the other day and offered to teach me. Never gone fly fishing before and have spent the last couple days learning how to rip some lips, as they say in the fly fishing world. And I'm really enjoying it so far. Uh, I've seen some black bears, antelope. Um, apparently there are a lot of mountain lions around. This morning I went for a trail run and... Uh, my now friend, who I met through the podcast, said, uh, he said, yeah, um, we're going to run down this trail. And I'm like, sweet, you lead the way. And he replied by saying, sure. Usually the first guy wakes up the rattlesnakes and the second one gets bit. And I was like, haha, that's funny. And about five minutes later, we were running down. And just as he passed one section of the trail, and then as I passed, I hear a... <laughs> That's my rattlesnake voice. Is that a... I can't... It's more of a shake. I don't know if I can do that with my mouth, but I jumped about four feet in the air. It scared the shit out of me. So Colorado is raw and rocky, and I love it out here. Uh, Getting lots of writing done. This episode is made possible by Santa Cruz Medicinals CBD. Niall, I'm happy that you're getting some CBD in your life. I'm also happy that you're, uh, you're kite surfing. You know, I got no problem with kite surfing. I have a little problem with kite surfing because I almost died doing it. So I don't think I'm going to be going back anytime super soon. But I see the appeal because you can get going really fast, really quickly. And the thing that's cool about kite surfing too is it doesn't feel like it's windy when you're going with the wind. That's one thing that I enjoyed about it. But I'm still licking my wounds. And... When I was healing from that injury, snapped my arm doing it, uh, I was using CBD a ton. It was helping me with inflammation. It was helping me get to sleep. And if you would like to get some CBD in your life, head over to scmedicinals.com, type in the code name KYLE10, and get 10% off any order. If you want to try out some CBD along with joining my book club, you can head over to my website, kyle.surf click box of goodies, and I will send you a book that I love every single month, along with a Santa Cruz Medicinals CBD tincture, all at a discounted price. So if you want to get more reading in your life, if you trust my judgment on books, and if you want to try out some of the CBD and support the podcast all at the same time, head over to kyle.surf and click on the box of goodies. Last month, the book was Denali by Ben Moon, and this month it is Dress Your Family in Corduroy and Denim by David Sedaris. This episode is also made possible by the Nell Newman Foundation. The Nell Newman Foundation supports bold, unpopular, iconoclastic ideas. They support environmental organizations, and in this ad, I'm going to be highlighting one final time the Ron Finley Project. Ron Finley, a.k.a. the Gangster Gardener, is building food gardens in urban areas around California. Um, He has a setup in South Central LA, and it's one of uh, the best organizations out there. So if you got some extra time on your hands, if you want to help volunteer, head over to the Ron Finley Project. Um, I will link to them in in the uh, description below. And 
do some good in the world because Ron's the man and the Nell Newman Foundation supports them. And I am serving as a conduit to let you all know about that project. So if you do end up volunteering, let me know. This episode is with James Rickman. James has been a member of Playboy Print since 2015, and he previously served as the managing editor of Paper Magazine. He's a super smart dude, and I hope that you enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with the fabulous James Rickman. records backup um of everything so i was able to save the interview and put it out and it was all great that's the nightmare yeah we all have those terrifying uh experiences that we hope we can save and learn the lesson before anyone dies (laughs) (laughs) yeah i interviewed al gore and pharrell probably the the most famous people i've recorded i've interviewed and it was a phoner and they were chugging along. And then the audio just cut out. They went silent. And I was like, ah, got, hello? Are you still there? And it just like stretched on for an eternity. And then suddenly kicked back in. And there was Gorbin. Now, James, I want to talk about, you know. And it, it the recording went through the entire time. There was just this mysterious silence that uh, scared the well, shit out of me. When I was in my early 20s, I was making a short form documentary about this proposed nuclear power plant in Jeffrey's Bay, South Africa, which is this really well-known surf spot. And I uh, cornered Kelly Slater to be in the, in the documentary and he agreed to do it. He's a really nice guy. And uh, I set up my camera and started doing the interview and I didn't have any extra lights with me. So I just put myself um, in front of the window. So I would get the natural light behind me on his face And as we started the interview, I didn't realize that the sun was receding behind the hills. So as the interview went on, Kelly went from being very well lit to being a dark um, silhouette by the end of the interview. Mm. But I was too afraid to stop him or like move to any other area. So the whole like last 20 minutes of the interview were just totally useless. Ah, crap. Yeah, it happens to the best of us. But podcasting is pretty simple. Um, and thank you so much for doing this. I, I um, look forward to learning more about you as we um, grew up in the same stomping ground. So were you born in Santa Cruz? I was. Community hospital. It's now defunct. Um, and uh, lived all but three years of my life um, right off the UCSC campus where the kind of suburbs turn into pasture land and wilderness. Um, and, you know, it I was know, like... I know that area well. Yeah. I mean, a lot of UCSC students know where the trails are, which is right at the end of my street. And, um, you know, it used to be a lot of like trailers, up toward the end of that street and then it became mcmansions and then right up the hill from there is where mr netflix built his compound my dad was the um first graduating class of uc santa cruz and i think that he said there was something like 250 people at the whole school when he first went there and they were all in trails or I mean the in trailers up on um, campus that because they hadn't built any permanent dwellings up there so his first few years in school were um, just living in a trailer and then someone asked him to take photos for the yearbook one year this is black and white and he did that which is what got him into film. And he's done uh, documentary film for the last 35 plus years, which is how I got into it as well. No shit, but that's not what he was studying. No, he wasn't studying film at the time. I forget what his major was, but that's that was the thread that he pulled on that init- initially, uh, you know, pulled on it and then he got into the the tapestry. But uh, then he went down to UCLA Film School and studied it more full on from there. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Similar to my dad. He was uh, at the U of I 
in uh, Champaign-Urbana and he was, he was all about theater, you know, and he was going to go to New York and try to make a go of it there. And then he saw a flyer, I think, for a nascent film school that did not yet exist called the American Film Institute that was looking for applicants. And he pretty much on a whim shot a short film version of a Flannery O'Connor story. And he became a member of the first graduating class of AFI. So that's a weird are you, parallel. Are, are you part of a family of writers? Yeah. Yeah. Um, my dad was a screenwriter um, starting back in the 70s. My mom, over the last 20 years or so, has been writing plays, which, you know, they, they get produced pretty consistently in Santa Cruz um, on campus and at some of the new theaters that have sprung up downtown. And um, and around the country, nice. Uh, I yeah, Santa Cruz is popping off with new theaters. We just opened up our first full time comedy club called DNA's Comedy Lab downtown, and it's uh, been a beacon for LA comics and Santa and San Francisco comics to come into town and perform. It's it's really good. Santa Cruz has a budding uh, comedy scene. At least it did before you know, the pandemic. Right. And are you one of the co-founders of this club? I'm not. There's a guy named DNA who uh, set it up and and he has uh, wrangled in a lot of the comedians, but I am a a lowly open micer. uh, And, you know, before we were on lockdown, I would go around to bars and tell jokes a few nights a week. And then um, I got into that from the last few few years of producing that comedy show, The Motherfucker Awards, um, and decided to to give it a go myself. But I think that it's a a it's just really fun to be silly and not take life so seriously. But B, I've found that if you want to get a message across, it's you can't it's very difficult to just give that message to someone straight and expect that they're going to pay attention you need to slip it through the back door in some kind of sneaky Mm -hmm. way to get it into people's consciousnesses and um i remember the conversation that that you and i had uh around that fire uh down in la talking about messaging and how to get people to pay attention in um this economy where everyone is vying for attention. Mm-hmm. Um, how have you, how have you thought about um, attention and the ability for um, sex to grab people's attention? Wow. All right. Coming in you, hot. You ready to get, <laughs> get into it? Yeah, man. That's a good one. Um, and I do have something I've been saying. So I've been a playboy for four and a half years And I think my biggest takeaway or what has become my kind of North Star, as we say, is the idea that Playboy is obviously best known for the pictorials. And I don't I work on the opposite side. I work on the words. And what keeps me going is the idea that there are people coming to the magazine just to check out the naked women but that those people might turn the page from one of our, you know, playmates of the month and come upon an article that my colleagues and I have been fortunate enough enough to work on, which is, you know, can be very weighty stuff. It doesn't have to be lighthearted. It doesn't have to be pop culture. It can really be about whatever we think is important. And maybe that dude, you know, it's, you could be like a stereotypical fl- uh, frat boy, say, turns the page, sees a story about, you know, what slavery looks like in the present day, just an example off the top of my head, or about a group of veterans who are protecting rhinos in South Africa, something like that. And maybe it'll catch their eye, and maybe some of those dudes will start reading and and learn something. You know, so that's kind of what I picture. Have you always understood that concept of needing to um, sneak the earnest storytelling through the back door? Or is that um, a learned idea for you? Um, It's definitely it goes to a whole new level with Playboy, I think, 
it, Playboy just just throws that whole concept into sharp relief. And I'm not, you know, I'm certainly not saying that our whole readership is just a bunch of bros who only care about nudes. Um, but I do think that, yeah, sometimes you need that balance. You need that package. And what I love about Playboy is that there's no sense we're just preaching to the choir, that we have one small and like very contained audience and that this audience has all the same vocab that we do on the editorial staff who, you know, who essentially get paid to be as up to the minute as anyone possibly can be, but that there are people from entirely different backgrounds, entirely different parts of the world. You know, the global audience is massive with Playboy and that we have to connect with them too, using whatever tools we have. Um, so yeah, this, that's pretty new to me working at Playboy. Yeah. Well, it's not schlock journalism. I subscribe to Playboy and am impressed with the level of journalism that I see consistently and has been represented throughout the the course of its existence. I mean, it's it's no joke. You guys have people like Jack Kerouac writing articles for Playboy back in the day. Um, mm. and, and I do th think also that, as you said, um, you're not preaching to the choir. And understanding who you're talking to and understanding how you can um, pierce these different worlds that are um, typically in echo chambers mm -hmm. is a very powerful place to sit. Um, you know, it's it's a lot more powerful if someone like Dave Chappelle talks about climate change than if Al Gore talks about climate change, right? Because he's entering yeah. into this whole other world of people that haven't necessarily um, thought of it. And that was that was kind of how I was was following this thread around comedy. Um, mm -hmm. I think that sex and comedy are two very um, attractive mediums to be able to talk about important ideas. Um, mm -hmm. and you know, sex and beautiful women are fun, but I also think that sex is one of the most powerful, um, means of controlling people's ideals. And, um, and I think that shame and repression around sex has caused, um, a ton of harm throughout this world. So taking it head on and kind of being at the center of sex and not being ashamed to talk about it is, um, it's a, a powerful thing to do. Absolutely. And is way at the top of our, of our mission is destigmatizing, normalizing and, and, celebrating sex in all its complexity and i should add that like i definitely don't see our pictorials as like a means to an end as like a funnel to the the serious stuff or the the sugar that makes the medicine go down the the pictorials are an end unto themselves as a way of celebrating sexuality that that evolves with the time. One of the most fascinating things Playboy has ever produced is our collection of centerfolds, with this, which is a massive book that um, you can flip through, and it's like it's like this vivid visual history of the 20th century. Just looking at how the color palette changes and the backgrounds, and of course the styling um, is incredible. There's so much information in there, and of course there's so much. You know, these these women are the subjects. It's their identities. And that's something I think we've really been able to circle back to is, um, you know, these days the playmates have a major say in the production of their shoots and the staffing of their shoots. Who shoot, who's the photographer and who's behind the scenes. And, um, oh, shit, sorry. You're good. <laughs> and... Uh, and I think there's a kind of palpable uh, effect there that you can see. What does that look like? Um, what do you say to someone who says, oh, you work at Playboy, so you're all about objectifying women? Right. I mean, it's so funny. That never goes away. I'll start by saying 
pretty much everyone you talk to about Playboy has a different idea of which era <laughs> is current with Playboy. Some people are like, yeah, yeah, you know, you got those great articles and you're like, didn't you just feature Kurt Vonnegut? And they're just referencing something from like the 70s. Other people are like, oh, it's the girls next door. It's trash. You know, that's another common one. Or also very common, the you're objectifying women one, which I just like to ask what people think that means because it's such a, what's the word I'm looking for? It's it's kind of become detached from meaning. It's just something that is grafted to the word playboy is objectification. So it's like, all right, let's pause and define that term. And it's funny how those conversations can evolve and you realize you're not really, it's not as cut and dried point counterpoint as you might think. Um, and I suppose that just demonstrates what I think Playboy is, which is a platform for a conversation and, um, and a way to have very vigorous conversations about sexuality and the shifting mores of sexuality. And I always say that it's not, there will never be an end point to that conversation. We will never <laughs> solve sexuality and what not until we're means. not until we're gray aliens a few thousand years from now and we don't have genitalia and we've just thrown it out the window completely yeah and that doesn't sound as fun you know even as messy as it can be and as contentious as it can be talking about sex sexuality gender all of that that is what we're in the business in is facilitating that conversation uh we do try to guide it we try to be at the f very forefront of that conversation but we're not dictating what those things mean yeah the, you know all we want is to to have those conversations and know that there are infinite perspectives on it and and if we're if we're moving it forward a little bit then at least as far as i'm concerned our work is done and as I kind of flailed into in my initial statement, getting into this conversation about sexuality um, and its importance, I think that another um, aspect to it is life force. You know, like sex, anyone who who has felt that kind of tingle of sexuality understands that it is in a lot of ways an antidote to death. Uh, mm. And I think that's one of the reasons why we are so endlessly fascinated by it um while simultaneously most cultures are afraid of it terrified mm -hmm. of it yeah yeah terrified repressed and i think we all know by now what happens there what doesn't happen is it just goes away if you ignore it um and i don't want to make any sweeping generalizations about like the Catholic Church, but I think there are plenty of examples as to what happens if you pretend it's not there or if you, you pretend it's bad or dirty or only for procreation or should be tightly regulated and that one group should dictate how the other person exercises their sexuality. I can't think of any examples where that's worked out well. Yeah, there are there have been a lot of scientific studies around the um, connection between violent societies and sexual repression. Mm -hmm. Before this interview, I um, was reading one of the articles in Psychology Today about sexual repression and violence. And in the article, they quoted um, a line from Mark Twain, which I thought you'd appreciate, which is, man has imagined a heaven and has left out ent entirely of it the supremest of all his delights, the one ecstasy that stands first and foremost in the heart of every individual uh, sexual, sexual intercourse. It is as if a lost and perishing person in a roasting desert should be told by the rescuer. He might choose and have all longed-for things but one, and he stands to leave out water. Damn. 
Go ahead, Mark Twain. I had no idea. That's great. What an amazing quote. Um, Yeah. Uh, So what do you think are um, the most juicy conversations to get into around sexuality right now? You said before that you think that Playboy is a a platform for those kinds of conversations to to happen. Let's say that you had a, a room full of you know, 50 curious young men and women in their mm-hmm. mid-20s, curious, smart people, and you were given um, an opportunity to um, s- to have a few of these conversations with them. Um, where would you start out? Where would you start out? Holy crap. Okay. I do think there's a very urgent issue around shifting the discussion around abortion from a from pro-life pro-choice from this kind of false binary to abortion justice and um, looking at how abortion rights intersect with class um, I, certainly for me I'm you know I'm kind of lagging behind this conversation I'm I've I recently edited a piece about it um around how this pandemic is affecting abortion rights and how some politicians are using this moment to seize upon that agenda and say it's non-essential you know shut it down in the entire state um as of you know a month ago there was some success but weed um, is abortion is not essential but sure weed is. <laughs> so i think it's important to kind of lend that whole new perspective uh to that issue and um bring it from the the abstract which i think we could fight about till the end of time and look at how it actually plays out across class i think that's really a a very urgent conversation Mm. um i agree i think that's a good one yeah uh did, were you interested in these issues before you came to Playboy? I know that you were working as the editor of Paper Magazine mm-hmm. before um, before working at Playboy, or, or did did a lot of this kind of stuff and and your interest in stories around sexuality um, evolve from your tenure at Playboy? Yeah, I'm just trying to think. Like before that, you know, I. I got into this world through, uh, you know, writing about music because I was playing music, uh, but also had studied writing and and writing was sort of equal passion for me. And so as I was doing band stuff, I was trying to like establish myself as a writer. So that was all music. Um, And then once I started writing for Paper Magazine, I was snapping up any assignment they would offer me, which you know, a lot of it was music, but I also like I interviewed Evan Spiegel in the earliest days of Snapchat and uh, a lot of. Is he the founder of Snapchat? Yeah, uh, one of them. Yes. Okay. Um, and, you know, very out there artists and Carson Daly and skateboarders and just total range. Like I had to bone up on fashion real quick because that's so much a part of paper's world. And and I just kind of took that attitude of like, what do you got? I'll learn up on it. And, you know, whatever it is, there's there are some consistent rules to conversation in that context and learning about people. And you don't have to, I mean, you should you should research as much as you possibly can, but you have to remember you're also doing this for an audience that isn't going to be so up on things necessarily so you're kind of working two fronts you know Mm. at the same time but no to answer your question i'm not sure i'd ever said you know what i really want to focus on sexual politics or sex in general i don't know it wasn't wasn't front of mind for me but it sounds better than war zones so hey (laughs) my god i mean yeah what what you've done and what Kaj does, I don't think I've ever come near that. I'm fascinated with it. And of course, Playboy has a 
a legacy of supporting troops and veterans. So uh, we touch upon that when we can. I always welcome stories like the one I just mentioned, this group Vetpaw that uh, sends veterans to South Africa to patrol um, rhinoceros preserves and try to prevent poaching. Um, but, oh man. For, for just to pull the e-break right there, um, mm-hmm. <laughs> to be crystal clear, I've never been a war journalist, but well, who you, you are, the person that you're talking about, uh, Kaj Larson is a Navy SEAL and former vice correspondent who, uh, goes into a lot of hairy places for fun. Uh, what, so when, when you started working at, um, Playboy, did you, how did you get brought in, uh, to the magazine uh okay so i was at paper magazine for my last year in new york and i started as managing editor right as they were putting together the break the internet issue which was the one with kim kardashian on the cover looking very shiny and not there were two covers in one of them she's nude and in the other she's uh popping a champagne bottle with um the spume of the champagne arcing over her head and into a coupe that's balanced on her butt. Uh, this was a big deal back in, uh, oh God, 2014. Um, and it was a real baptism in fire for me as an editor um, at that level. So I did that for a year. I moved to LA for personal reasons, just because my my dad was living here and not doing very well. And after a couple months, someone sent me a link to a Playboy senior editor position. And I really did not think I was even going to get called in for an interview. And uh, I was. And two days before my first interview, the the New York Times came out with a piece that was like, oh, what the hell was it called? It The essence of it was like, no more nudes at Playboy. And it was the big reveal that Playboy was going to do away with nudity in the magazine. So I had to go into this interview and kind of rethink my whole approach because it was so out of nowhere. Playboy doing away with nudity. And through the interview process, I learned, I think they had kind of been looking at paper and, and they wanted maybe a little more of that kind of energy and they really didn't want to be associated with frat boys anymore or people who only cared about the nudity and i kind of fit that bill or so they thought <laughs> they didn't <laughs> like is that good i don't know i don't know <laughs> that's funny but there, i mean so clearly i had my own misconceptions about playboy i was expecting to walk into a room full of bros just making like lewd jokes and like being like some of the jocks I went to high school with. And it wasn't that at all. And, um, you know, the non-nude year 2016 was, um, was a tough one. And I think anyone who knows Playboy knows that that lasted a year. And then we brought the nudity back, which was, I just want to say, not the plan, you know. It wasn't what was like- the reason for uh, ending nudity in the first place? Just a just a, a change in direction of the ship, as you said, not wanting to be associated with um, frat boys. Well, I think I think you can sum it up by saying that they didn't want to be at the back of the rack at the newsstand in a black plastic wrapper. You know, they thought people should be seeing this and not be ashamed to pick it up. You know, people should be reading Playboy in airports and not be like, oh, God, I don't I look like a creep. That was a a large part of the thinking behind it. And. um, It. um, You know, I think it was was a tough year for all of us. It was 2016. (laughs) And then and there was a lot of other stuff going on, you know, that year. It's just insane to think back on it now. Yeah. Anyway, we. Yeah, I, I, um, I have a friend who's a a woman who loves to uh, 
tan nude in her front yard uh, here in Santa Cruz. And she's she very much does it both because she doesn't like tan lines, but also because she sees it as like a little moment of activism in mm-hmm. daily life. And I I often think about how culture shapes us. I'm convinced that if I was if I grew up in Tahoe, for example, I would be a snowboard bro. I just mm-hmm. happened to grow up near the ocean and I am a surfer. Like I didn't choose to be a surfer. I was just, you know, born on this patch of dirt. Right. Mm-hmm. And I, I think the same goes for culture and and sexual norms and what we deem to be uh, risque or or even um you know, heretical or, or abhorrent, mm-hmm. you know, it, it all just depends on where we were born. But whenever I see someone, you know, do something like, like tan naked in their front yard to put the discomfort back on mm-hmm. culture, I feel like the arc of history is, is bending a millimeter more towards morality. Um, there is like, and I do think that those are a little like, they're powerful moments and and most writers most artists are in some way you know they're engaged in that discomfort to try and move mm-hmm. culture more towards what they deem to be right yeah when it's good and that's always going to be uncomfortable i think that's how you know you're doing it right if there were no debate about it if there're no complexity about it which is something I always think about, you know, because of course we're all on Twitter all day. And I think one of the great tragedies right now is it's like now more than ever is when we really need long and complex conversations that require a lot of patience and a lot of stamina. And what we're doing so much of the time is the exact opposite. Um, it's just ADD. It's, um, there's no base level of like good faith and um, it's, it's horrifying. You know, it's a very complicated world and this is not the platform on which we should be discussing it. You know? Um, yeah. I think that podcasts for that reason are, are super helpful because mm-hmm. a lot of these issues are messy and it at least gives you enough time to be able to make a point in over 90 seconds. I mean, and, and, the ADD thing has gone all the way up to the presidential level. You know, you have presidential candidates now in debates that have 90 seconds to make their point before they have, yeah. you know, the commentator, excuse me, sir, sir, Mr. Sanders, Mr. Sanders, that's your time. That's your time. Right. Okay. Right. Let's get, get it over to Biden now. It makes yeah. it very difficult to make any sense of the world that way. Agree. Yeah. So you came in as the editor of, of Playboy. Um, and, and editor. I came in and, as, as and senior editor. editor. Yeah. In, uh, in which, t- 2015. Um, at the end of 2015. Yeah. Looking after the entertainment vertical of the website and then uh, the entertainment pieces in the, the magazine. And I jumped right in on the Playboy interview. Um, I mean, with a lot of help, but that became my responsibility at the top of 2016 with the Rachel Maddow interview was my first. What was the Rachel Maddow interview? It was that was the first non-nude issue, and you know it was the top of 2016 when I believe there was still a pretty wide Republican field, and I think a lot of it would look very quaint. You know, it wasn't. It was certainly a lot more optimistic, I think. But I, I think she's she made some incredible points about who she will engage with on her show and her sort of through line. I think she has a great quote about like what it all comes down to is people being allowed uh, or people having the freedom to speak on their own terms. And that's something I've really carried with me. You know, it was a great way to kick off this job really. Yeah. And what have been um, some of the stories that you've been most proud to tell since working with Playboy? Uh, well, there's a recent one, speaking of, you know, titans of news media, first issue of this year, 
I got Christian Amanpour to do the interview and I'd been trying that for years. And, um, I, I sort of gradually learned that she really doesn't like turning the lens on herself. I don't think I'm misrepresenting her here, but. And who is she? Christian Amanpour is, is just a legendary journalist now, uh, mostly at CNN. Um, I think she has a couple shows going, um, like a news digest where she also talks to, you know, the great cultural movers and shakers of the moment. Her real, I think she'll go down in history for being uh, an early and major news figure in the Balkans in the 90s when that whole region was on fire. And I think she was part of a, she was the eyes of the world in that region and she was a big part of a of a cultural shift in getting people to care about what was going on there and you know i'm sure she risked her life more times than anyone could count and she kind of reaffirmed why we need independent journalism you know you can really turn the tide of history by being there and bearing witness Hmm. so um she was finally ready to talk you know and sometimes these things really do take years and they take a lot of rejection and and just kind of forging relationships Uh, Amanpour has a great team at CNN and then one day you keep bugging someone and you get the email back that's like actually yeah she does want to do it you know she's she's going off to Istanbul in a week, but I think we can find some time, you know. Um, so did you conduct that interview? No, I've uh, I haven't done an interview. It's weirdly like (laughs) it seldom occurs to me to like put myself in. Uh, I've done a few things in the magazine with my byline, but I certainly wouldn't wouldn't have done it with her. Um, we definitely needed a heavy hitter, but I also wanted someone of a different generation and i went with a great writer named jill filipovic um political writer lawyer she wrote a book called the h spot about um boy i don't want to misrepresent her either so i'll just say jill wrote another story for us at the top of this year making the case for happiness as a political act happiness is a mindset that will that kind of trickles down to a lot of political actions um which is a perfectly playboy stance um so anyway she got a great uh kind of pugnacious but also very respectful interview with christian which is kind of exactly what you want you don't want people just agreeing the whole time christian came back at her pretty hard on some things um and i it's one of my favorite things i've ever worked on there Wait, happiness as a tool for political action? Is that is that what you said there? More like a mindset. A um, mindset. Framing things like what are the very bare essentials of happiness? And, you know, it involves a certain degree of stability and comfort. It involves time. One of her big things is like if you are sprinting through your life just to cover everything cover your family cover off your cover your debts uh stay apace with our culture just evolving at a breakneck speed you kind of lose the the point of life you know you need time to forge relationships you need time to explore your sexuality and if you don't have that that's a political issue why why do you not have those the the time to to actually reap the greatest rewards of life mm. oh i like that i want to check that article out that's that sounds um that sounds very cool so on a day-to-day basis um you're not writing out in the field doing journalism what does a day-to-day um what does your day look like? Is it mostly mm-hmm. corresponding with other writers, um, greenlighting stories? What, what is the job of an editor 
actually look like um besides i'm sure you know six hours a day of orgies just crazy <laughs> playboy mansion you know oh you, yeah yeah just we're mostly bubble baths and yeah. squirt guns uh, the grotto we're mostly just sprawled out in the grotto and yeah then, uh, bubble baths squirt guns and you know someone sends you a pitch and you just say i love it i love it yeah go with it yeah go with it go with Here's your gut the- bottomless budget i love it yes yeah yeah it's pretty much that and um yeah the accurate part of that is that we don't actually get to the editing part um where we actually work on stories till like the end of the day after you've had meetings and um you know you've fielded a, a vast array of pitches um and you know you could never there's never enough room to okay even the ones you really like. You know, there's so many factors that go into it. So just getting a story booked is a real process. Um, and then in some sense, like actually working on copy together is is kind of the tip of the iceberg as far as the the process is concerned. And then when you get to that point and you're just working on shaping up stories and getting the language exactly where you want it and the narrative arc and the vividness and the basic relatability all there, that's the joy of the job. But that often happens at the end of the day or weekends or whatever, you know, when everyone is plugged in and at work, you're doing a lot of racing around and and talking to people and you know this is also media in the 21st century so a lot of the work is is navigating that and and figuring out how to stay relevant stay in the conversation and where the conversation is you know in the media and digital landscape um yeah how do you try and how do you try and find that um and how do you navigate those two forces that are constantly at play? One sticking with the voice and tradition of Playboy as a brand while trying to figure out where the conversation is and where it's going. Man, I don't even know if I can speak to that because the, you know, there are there are teams at Playboy who specialize in in figuring out where we should be placing our conversations. I am in many ways very old school, which is a weird thing to say because I have absolutely no journalism background as far as education and often feel like I have no idea what I'm doing and that my focus on just the storytelling part of it is (laughs) maybe not what you want entirely in an editor. Like I, I don't consider myself, I know what my weaknesses are, you know, and I think the older that you get, maybe the more comfortable you get just, just blurting them out and not trying to like hide them. And I know mine is not, um, placing these conversations in a digital context, you know, in the way that some of my colleagues do. Hmm. Uh, and and how how has it um uh that's really interesting that's very interesting i appreciate that you uh are talking about your uh your weaknesses as as well as the strengths i think it's that's great i mean I, I think that most most people having done over 200 of these podcasts people in any kind of prominent positions feel like they're faking it uh just a yeah. little bit but they can lean on one or two strengths that have allowed them to be to um kind of navigate their way through it mm-hmm. um have you as as a writer do you think that your your strengths are in storytelling you said that you've always kind of focused on the story and and the narrative is that what you is that like the tool in your toolkit that you always fall back on in your job yeah, I mean I come from a fiction and literature background. So that's that's the way I'm programmed and that's, you know, writing, storytelling has has been my passion from from you know, basic cognizance <laughs> of 
of my life. So yeah, that's that's what I fixate on. And a lot of it for me is language. I drive a lot of writers insane with the heavy handedness of my edits. And um, <laughs> if we're both lucky, there you know there will be a lot of um, push and pull on that. But yeah, I go pretty deep on the language and mm. um, the why I know that you said history, but do you, um, what is the obsession with language? Like what, where do you think mm -hmm. that that, um, what does it mean to you? Especially, you know, in, in a world where most people just are using like ums and uhs and that's great. <laughs> like, you know, Louis C.K. has this great bit about how like we just use the top shelf words now. Like it was mm -hmm. amazing. Like really you were um, you were amazed. Amazing. You just used the best <laughs> word for what that sandwich tastes like. Yeah. 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 We're pretty much pegged in the red constantly, which I think, I don't know. I've never gotten over the use of literally. And at this point, it's not even when it's incorrect, which is a lot of the time, but just the amount that it's used. I, I thought this would pass instead of escalating for years and years, but I can't really hear people use the word literally without getting just a little bit of nausea it's either unnecessary or misused. And if someone says I literally went ape shit, my, my hard drive just kind of crashes, you know? <laughs> yeah. So I am kind of, I think it's very archaic at this point, the way yeah. I think about language, but that's, you know, I will die on that hill. Well, it's a good hill to die on. And I've, noticed in in, in co this conversation with you you don't use a lot of extra words um do you have any kind of techniques when you to try and uh um reduce the clutter in your own speech boy i think i talk very slow a lot of the time <laughs> a lot of people will finish my sentences for me or attempt to problem there is you usually get it wrong but like yeah i really i can't finish a sentence until i have the words right and i think um i think it's overlooked how crucial it is to keep that line taught i just got something wrong there you can't say how crucial something is either crucial or not that's a singular word like unique you don't say that's very unique Unique means singular. Anyway, I could, sorry. That I love it. No, I'm a total geek for this stuff. So yeah, I appreciate it. Good, Everyone good. else hates us right now. They're like, God damn it. God, this is boring. <laughs> yeah. This is the most tedious episode of your podcast. I'm just going to call it right now. Everyone thought that they were coming in to hear about sex and drugs and that we're yeah. talking about the word sorry. literally. I know. Um, I don't care. I'm I'm happy to do it. These are the this is the end of days. It's quarantine time. Let's just go for literal. Let's talk about the word literally for the next ten minutes. I'm in. <laughs> Only ten minutes. Yeah. Now I'm starting to feel bad that I don't have a story about like sneaking off into the grotto. I did. You know, a lot of people want to hear about the mansion, and I'm very lucky that um, I caught the mansion in its last days because, of course, Hef died in 2017, and um, there was this whole weird thing where he'd sold the mansion before he died, but, but stipulated that he could live there till the end. And, um, you know, when he died at 91, I can't remember what the time frame was. Maybe it was 90 days to clear out the mansion. And think about that. They, they he bought the Playboy mansion, I believe in 1974. <laughs> so there was a lot to clear out. I'm very proud to say I got a bottle of Manischewitz from the Playboy catacombs that was like covered in dust. <laughs> like, yeah this this is my little piece of the mansion. this is the coolest i've ever felt <laughs> pretty much never drink of that man of shepherds but i you know i got to go to the last midsummer night's dream which was the biggest playboy mansion blowout of the year where everyone's in costume all of us on the staff 
were required to show up in sleepwear, which for me was a kimono. <laughs> and uh, that is a team building exercise right there. You got to party with your whole staff in a kimono. Um, but yeah, it never lost its novelty for me because, of course, Cooper Hefner, Hef's uh, son, I can't, he had two kids, uh, Cooper and Marston. I can't remember what the who's older and who's younger. But anyway, Cooper took over in uh at the end of 2016 and he was um oh, what was his title chief creative officer anyway he was kind of running the magazine and and other things for what was it like a year and a half maybe and you know he was i loved working with him i feel a definite like fraternal thing with him despite <laughs> how much younger he is but you know he would say things like, say there was an event, a Playboy event in the nighttime. He'd be like, yeah, stop by the house. We'll go together. I was like, oh, the house. You mean the mansion, don't you? I'm like, all right, cool. <laughs> uh, this was a very surreal, possibly the most surreal dinner I've ever had. I was there with Cooper and some other uh, teammates in this, in one of the dining rooms. And a woman came out of a swinging door and said what do you want for dinner and i was like what well, i um is there a menu she's like no what do you want for dinner just say something and i'll make it i was like ah and i panicked i couldn't think of anything because i've never had unlimited options in my life and of course i was just like um pasta would be great <laughs> and uh i didn't I didn't think big in that moment. I don't even know what that would have been, but um in retrospect you should have said, I want a black rhinoceros from Namibia. <laughs> That's right. I, yeah. <laughs> like, do you uh, have Komodo dragon steaks? <laughs> Something like that. Um anyway. That's great. It, was, it was a real treat to to get in there at the tail end of the mansion mm. days. Yeah. Well, James, we've been going for almost an hour and I have learned a lot about Playboy and mm -hmm. I appreciate your um, willingness to play along on this podcast um, and your attention to detail as a writer. I um, look forward to reading more of your work moving forward. Thank you very much. I, I look forward to putting more out there, even if my byline's not on it. Um, there's so much we do that that my colleagues and I do that I'm so proud of. Um, I would encourage anyone to go to playboy.com. You might be surprised. Um, most people are when they actually see what we're doing and realize that maybe what they thought Playboy was is not quite current. That should be your tagline, Playboy. You might be surprised. <laughs> oh, that's good. Yeah. I like that. Yeah, yeah. My brain's not totally waterlogged from the salt water. I still got a little, yeah. little brain in there. What's your favorite spot in Santa Cruz? I live right near Pleasure Point, uh, so I surf there more than anywhere else. However, my mom grew up. Um, my 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 parents split up when I was a kid. My mom was on the west side. My dad was on the east side. So I would spend half the week. Um, you know, wearing blue on the east side and the other half wearing red on the west side. Uh, yeah. And so I, I had the best of both worlds, so to speak, and got to see the silliness of those tribal cultures um, mm -hmm. from a young age. Uh, you know, so I, I was very worldly, you know, going through that that five mile uh, distance from the east side to the west side. I got to see a lot, but I also got to surf most of those other spots. Um, so I would say that probably my favorite spot in Santa Cruz is on the Midtown, uh, which is the Santa Cruz Harbor Mouth, um, which isn't consistent. But the way you'd, you'd be interested in this, um, the you know, one of the first spots ever surfed outside of Hawaii was the Santa Cruz river mouth, uh, by two Hawaiian princes that came to Santa Cruz, um, to trade and they got redwood boards. They, they cut down old growth, redwood trees, made surfboards out of them and surfed the Santa Cruz river mouth, which at the time flowed all year long. 
Um, and then what happened in the 1930s is the Army Corps of Engineers built the harbor just south of the river mouth, and it stopped the flow of sand from moving south um, along the rest of the beaches in Santa Cruz. It also made it so that now the Santa Cruz River mouth doesn't flow all year long. It only does after big rains, made Seabright Beach a lot bigger, Santa Cruz River mm. mouth less consistent, and it also forced sand around the jacks which makes this crazy barreling wave that breaks you know 10 yards off of uh the jacks at the santa cruz harbor mouth it's also an, e an illegal spot to surf so you have to sneak out there and play a little game of cat and mouse with the harbor patrol before they kick you out delicious so when when did the hawaiian guys come out oh Gosh, um, there's a there's a plaque right at Seabright Beach that tells the whole story, but I would just be talking out of my ass if I told you the date of when they they did. But um, it is known that the Santa Cruz River mouth was um, was one of the first spots ever surfed outside of Hawaii by wow. Hawaiian princes on redwood boards. That is damn good trivia. I did not know that. That's what I'm here for. That's our show. I'm going to play you out with a song called Three Foot Tires and Rising by Oppo. They listened to the podcast and they sent me some tunes. If you're a musician and you want to send me some music to play on the podcast, you can send it to info at kyle.surf. I will link to your band page in the show notes below. Maybe get some more people to listen to your tunes. You win, I win, we win. And if you want to send me a voice memo, try and keep it under a minute. Let me know where you're listening from, who you are, some details about your surroundings. And you can email that to info at kyle.surf. Don't forget, we're doing the box of goodies. Santa Cruz Medicinal's potent CBD tincture, along with a book that I love, sent to your doorstep every single month. You can click the link below, titled Box of Goodies, to sign up. Or you can head over to my website, kyle.surf. Hope you're all having a great day out there. Practice good posture. Don't drive too fast. Give lots of high fives and tell someone you love them. And without further ado, I hope you enjoyed this song called Three Foot Tires and Rising by Oppo.
Most of my rights. 